morning, church. Good to be with you guys. Excited to teach the Word of God. Are you guys excited? All right. I like the enthusiasm, you know? It's like bleeding over from the Super Bowl or something. Hey, you know, I, uh, I have been really blessed by this last series, uh, Draw Near, the last whole month of January. I can truly say this is one of the most substantive, best, best teachings I've heard on how to engage and draw near to Christ. If you've been blessed by this, can we just encourage our brother Rob and all that he's poured into this? This is his job, but I can tell you from walking with him now for 14 years um, that this is not just a job and getting up here and delivering a sermon. This is his life. And this is what he's engaged in his own journey. And that's really the hard work, right? You can get up here and talk about stuff all day long. But if you do not engage this off of this stage, um, then it doesn't really produce the fruit. And I can just encourage you guys that Pastor Rob, Pastor Mari, this is part of their story and how they've been actively drawing near to God over the last several, several years. And so we're so grateful for you guys. Um, and I'm thrilled to be up here. This is, this is a subject matter that I'm extremely uh, passionate about. And so while we're wrapping up this series today, I want to remind you that our entire focus this year is how as a church can we do life with God more? My prayer has been really simple. God, I pray that by the end of this year that the people of our church could say in 2024, I became a closer friend with Jesus than I was when I started. I knew him better. I walked with him a little bit closer in my life. That's my prayer for you. And so we started a couple weeks ago with the passage from James 4 that says, draw near to God and he will draw near to you. See, God has invited us into this intimate personal relationship. You were designed for communion with the living God. In John chapter 15, he said, abide in me, remain in me, dwell with me, and I will dwell with you. And you will produce much fruit. Jesus said, I no longer call you servants, but I call you my friends. In the epistles, they teach that he's placed his spirit in you, and now it cries out, Abba, Father. You were created for intimate, close communion with God. But as we've said in James 4, it says, but we, we have a choice in this matter that we are to draw near to God, that it is our choice, that he's not going to force this companionship on us. But every day as believers, we have to choose to draw near to him. And it is a daily choice, is it not? So if we were created for this and God has made it possible for to access such an intimate relationship with him and he puts forth saying, abide, remain, make your home in me, then why is it that so many of us choose not to? And we've talked about this and tried to answer this question. And what we've discerned is that there are these internal and external headwinds that are working against us to rob us of our ability to be attentive and present to God in our lives, right? 
There's these internal and external headwinds. And I know in my life, I've heard this sermon. I've read the book, Draw Near to God by John Bevere. Is that right? I remember reading that and thinking, you know what? I'm going to draw near to God. I'm going to create space. And so I turn and I'm like the weathermen, like forecasting around the hurricane. And I'm like, I'm going to draw near to God. And the winds and the currents are pushing against me. And I make some strides for some time. But then slowly over time, it's like the currents of life pull me away from being present to God. Both the internal and external, and we've talked about some of those internal currents, our internal compulsions and distractions and fears and doubts that pull at us. But then there's the external things, right? Life, the busyness, the hurriedness, the distractions from so many directions coming at us, pulling us away that sometimes it can, if we're honest, feel like we actually don't have a choice, right? It's like draw near to God, it's our choice, but do we really have a choice in the matter? Because there's so much pulling at us. And I think there's a lot of people within the church that were like me, that had followed Jesus for a while and had intentionally and thoughtfully tried to draw near to God and step after step trying to push against the wind. But after a couple times of getting thrown back, we just kind of threw the talent. And they're like, hey, God, I still believe in you. I still think you're good. I'll go to church. But we've really given up on any true belief that we can have an intimate, personal relationship with God. Or maybe you started following Jesus for the first time recently, and you're like, man, that sounds amazing, but I don't know how to do that. What I found in my life is when I reached that moment where I kind of came to the point where I couldn't do in myself the thing that God was asking or inviting me to do, and I would get frustrated and I would get discouraged, I have found this to be true, that when I come to the end of myself, I can have confidence that Jesus has provided a means, a way for me to walk that will help me cultivate the grace to do what he's called me to do. So it's common. If you've ever felt that point where you've come in like, yeah, God, I know you've promised this. I know you've invited me into this, but I have no clue how to do it. And I've tried everything in my will. Have this confidence and begin to look at the scriptures and ask, God, if you've invited me, how have you provided for me? And how can I walk more in step with your spirit? And so the question I like to ask in that moment is what is the ancient path of Jesus that he has provided that helps us overcome and combat the headwinds that actively work against pulling us away of being with him? What are the ways of Jesus that I can learn? What are the ways that are in scripture? What are the ways that that have been established forever that I can begin to incorporate in my life to help me fight against the internal and external currents that want to pull me away? And so that's what we're going to ask this morning. And really what we've been asking this whole series and hinting at and coming back to is, is we have this problem, but God in his grace offers us a way. 
And so we return to the passage we ended with last week in Isaiah 30, 15. This is one of my favorite passages. It says this, this is what the sovereign Lord, the Holy One of Israel says, in repentance and in rest is your salvation. In quietness and in trust is your strength. But you would have none of it. So the problem is we have internal and external headwinds pulling against our desire to be with God. And the solution is God's invitation to get away into solitude, into stillness, and into silence before him. To some of you, this subject is kind of like talking about with your kids to eat their broccoli and their greens or going to the doctor and them saying you need to drink fish oil. <laughs> oh, science and solitude. Ugh. The extroverts in the room cringe. The, the task listers are like, no, I will be in control. And then for the more introverted, they're like, yes, finally, church is saying that it's spiritual for you to leave me alone. <laughs> I think my desire this morning is to help guide us into this invitation to create space and solitude and silence so that we might combat those headwinds so that we can live more life in the presence and communion with God and to really emphasize the centrality of this discipline in our modern spirituality. Mother Teresa, probably the, one of the most impactful believers and leaders of our time said this, we need to find God and he cannot be found in the noise and the restlessness. God is a friend of silence. And when we look at our Savior's life, we notice that he regularly had this pattern of engaging and disengaging. He had this normative routine where he was constantly going away into isolated places. And so we read that in Mark 1, 35. It says, very early in the morning, while it was still dark, Jesus got up, left the house, and went off to a solitary place where he prayed. In Luke 5, it says the news about him spread all the more. He's getting popular. Things are happening. Ministry is, is moving forward. His kingdom is building. And the crowds of people came to hear him and to be healed of their sickness. But Jesus, what did he do? He often withdrew to lonely places and prayed. And not only did he do this himself, but he also modeled and invited his disciples into this practice. We read in Mark 6, because so many people were coming and going that they did not even have a chance to eat. All right, one, any parents ever felt that way or you've been so busy, you don't have a chance to eat? I've had seasons where I like wake up and I'm like, man, I skipped lunch like three times this week, right? You ever been that place where you're so busy, I don't even have a chance to eat? That's what's happening with the disciples here. And Jesus said to his disciples, come with me by yourselves to a quiet place and get some rest. So they went away by themselves in a boat to a solitary place. 
I believe that if we are going to take our faith and our spiritual walk with God seriously, that silence and solitude are absolutely essential. They're critical. And if you read the testimony of the early church fathers, you will find an ongoing and an ever-present testimony to the necessity of practicing silence and solitude in our lives if we ever want to, to, to continue in the lit with God life amongst all the things that pull, front, pull us in our culture. And I would argue in light of the rise of, of technology and social media that it may be the most important discipline for our spiritual life. Richard Foster said this, solitude makes the spiritual life possible because in it we are freed from the bondage of people and our internal compulsions. We are freed to love God and know compassion for others. See, solitude is the place of our liberation. Without it, we are enslaved to our own desires, our own compulsions, our own traumas that drive our decisions and our actions. Some of them we're aware of and some of them we are not. And it is in silence and solitude that we can calm the noise enough that the sediments of our lives can settle and those things can rise to the surface and we can bring them before God so that we might be set free. See, even our Christianity sometimes can be driven by these impulses and a desire to be accepted, to feel worthy of God's love or to feel like we matter. And that's why it's so critical that even to pray that silence and solitude are absolutely necessary. See, for me, I grew up in the church. I grew up around very charismatic people that prayed a lot and very loudly. And I was super blessed by that. Honestly, I laugh about it, but I'm so grateful for the family that I got to grow up in that was surrounding me in prayer. But I kind of learned this, that man, I need to pray. This is, this is kind of how we pray. But then when I got to pray, I had one major problem. My mind. No one told me what to do with my mind in prayer. And so I would sit down to pray and I'd have my list or the things I'd want to pray about. And I would do pretty good for a while. And then my mind would take over. And I would start either thinking like shameful thoughts towards myself. I'd start distracting, distracting, thinking about lunch or whatever was going on in my life. My mind would drift and it would rob me of my ability to be with God. And so for me, as I began to practice solitude and silence, it began to liberate me from my mind. The, th the very thing that needed to be disciplined so that I might be able to be present to God. See, in silence and solitude is the great liberator in our lives. Otherwise, we are enslaved to our compulsions and desires sometimes unaware of them. So the practice of solitude is simply this. It's an intentional time and place to be quiet and alone with yourself and with God. To stop all inputs. You constantly have things being inputted into your life. In our day and age, we're overwhelmed 
with information, with knowledge. And so it's a place that we carve out, that we intentionally choose to go into, where we stop inputs and we stop outputs so that we might be fully occupied with God and God alone. That's the practice of solitude. I believe it's also very possible to go our entire lives today without being completely alone. With the rise of technology, I think it is possible to eliminate solitude and silence completely out of our lives. Here's the irony of things. As a society, we are never completely alone, but we're rarely fully with others. We're rarely completely alone. We're rarely fully with others. So where is your solitary place? If Jesus, who was fully God and fully man, had perfect union with the Father, still found it absolutely necessary that he regularly went to solitary and isolated places so that he might maintain that and not be pulled into the demands of this world or overcome by them, how much more do we? See, Jesus started his ministry going into solitude. As he gained popularity, success, productivity in the ministry, he even more pulled into those isolated places. And then at his finest and hardest moment, right before he would go and lay down his life for you, we find him in the garden alone with his father, crying out. So what is your solitary place? Do you have space to be fully occupied just by being with God? This can feel overwhelming, discouraging. There's so much noise, so much busyness. Even getting and finding a place where you're left alone can be hard. But here's the good news. You don't have to be a monk in a hut to practice silence and solitude. It is possible for us to integrate these rhythms in our lives, even in small ways that begin to create space for us to encounter God. I encountered this discipline probably in one of the more busiest seasons of my life. I, my career here was starting to pick up. I was trying to finish a master's degree. We were popping out children like crazy. And, I, and it was like, man, I better get alone because I'm gonna lose my mind. Um, and what I found is, is it was hard. It is hard. But it's necessary. And in fact, the more busy I get and the more things I carry, the more it needs to be a priority in my life. So where do we begin? You might be sitting out there being, that's great. It's easy for you, Daniel. You're more of an introvert. Or, hey, that's hard for me. I'm a single mom. Or, hey, that's really hard for me. I'm an extrovert. 
Or I struggle with you know, attention disorders and it's really hard for me to sit alone. So where do, I, where do I begin? Here's what I would encourage you. One, to find little solitudes. Always start small with this. Don't be like, all right, I hear you, Daniel. Next week, I am doing a silent retreat for a whole week. Do not do that. <laughs> start small and look for little solitudes. See, our days are filled with little moments, sometimes planned and sometimes unexpected, quiet interludes, many of which though, however, we have a tendency to feel, right? When you get that little moment in the car where your, your child's late coming out of practice, what do we do? Oh, let's put on another podcast that I probably don't need to hear. <laughs> To get more information, I can't apply. <laughs> See, we take these little moments of silence and solitude in our lives and we fill them up with distractions. So I just encourage you, what would happen if you didn't fill it up? You just received it as a gift, even if it's like two or three minutes. For me, sometimes it's between one meeting and the next, and I have like a five-minute turnaround. I just shut my door, set my head back, and say, God, you are with me. I rest in your presence right now. It's just turning out the noise. Maybe there's a favorite passage of you. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. Breathing and allowing that gift and that invitation to be still and to be quiet before the Lord. So start there, start with little moments, little gifts during your days, your weeks, and choosing intentionally not to fill them up, not to distract them and not to fill them with noise. The second thing that I encourage you to do is you have to carve out a daily place and time. We can have the intention to do this. We could say, man, that sounds great, but I just need it to be flexible. My schedule's kind of hard to break. Let me tell you, that will never happen. When Jesus was instructing his disciples how to pray, how to have a uh, present, engaged relationship with Jesus or with, with God, he said this, go into your room and close the door. Jesus' first instructions for his disciples and how to create space to be with him and to talk with him and to hear from him was not how to pray or what to say, it was how to create the space. Because if we don't create that space, it will always be consumed by life. And so it's carving out that specific time in that specific place. It's important. Think about it. Jesus wasn't just going to lonely places in his mind. He was literally going to lonely places. He had a, 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 a place where he went. And when Jesus was instructing prayer, he said, go into a room. And so it is, there's something about having an actual place that we have designated for us to be a place of quiet and stillness. For some of you, you're like, I don't know where that would be. It's like closing the pantry door and sitting in there with your cocoa puffs. <laughs> or it's trying to close the bathroom as kids stick their hands under the door. You're like, really? <laughs> Whatever that is, it's, it's, it's putting it in pen. Put it on your calendar. 
Guard it with your life and create that place. When I was a kid, we called this the quiet time. That was the thing. And I think there's kind of like a cynicism around the quiet time, but I think there was something good and rich about that. The problem with the quiet time was it was never quiet. You ever experienced that? The quiet time for me was read my Bible, do the devotional, then go through my laundry list of people I'm interceding for, and then normally like, you know, several sentences of confession for the things I had done wrong. I feel the time and in, 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 if I was honest, I sometimes hid behind my Christian activities from really being known by God and allowing him to search my heart and to bring some of those things to the surface. And so what I want to encourage you to do is create that space, space, still read your Bible, still pray, still intercede, but maybe build in some time where you're just still. For some of you, if you're new to this, in that space, I would encourage you, don't just do like two minutes. I know the thought is like, well, I'm not good at this, so I should just do a short period of time. I used to actually teach that. What I find, if you're not good at it, you're gonna need more time. Because like me, if my mind's like all over the place, I'm gonna need 15 minutes just to get to the point where I've actually focused enough to be present. So give yourself some space to slow down and be still. So one, like I said, look for those little moments of solitude in your day. Then carve out daily places and time. And then last, periodically set aside times where you can get away for longer periods to be alone with Jesus. There's nothing that is more catalytic for my relationship when I get away from the noise, when I retreat to spaces for a longer period of time so I can be with God. This expedites the process of intimacy in my relationship with Jesus and creates momentum for my daily life. And so many of us, it's just like trying to start a daily quiet time or space to be alone with Jesus seems like it's overwhelming. And so sometimes just taking some time off, getting away for a couple hours in a space that's outside of your rhythm is necessary to get the momentum you need to carry that into your life. Does that make sense? And so what I've found for most people is that practicing solitude, silence, and stillness is maybe one of the hardest disciplines for us to integrate regularly into our lives. And some of that is because all of the things that are pulling at us, all the things that are demanding for our time and attention. But the reality is it's just a hard discipline to begin. And so many people will immediately, if you've ever tried, will face challenges, frustrations. Maybe you'll try it. And by the end of it, you're like, yeah, I totally fell at that. You know, I didn't think about Jesus once. <laughs> you know, my mind was all over the place. Or what did I accomplish? Right? Like you do it and you're like, I don't know if that did any good whatsoever in my life. And so there's these challenges and these headwinds and these frustrations that can come when we begin to practice silence and solitude that can immediately discourage us in continuing it in our lives. And so when I'm coaching and when I'm guiding and walking with so many of you and our leaders um, that want to practice silence and solitude, here's some of the advice that I give. First and foremost, you have to surrender your expectations. Yeah. 
You have to surrender your expectations. See, we, we come to silence and solitude. We get alone with God. We've put it on our calendar. We've created space. All right, heavens open up. Angels sing, booming voice of Jesus, come down and speak to me in this moment. Great insight's going to come, but nothing happens. It's quiet, it's still. And then before I know it, my mind wanders off. See, we have these expectations of what's gonna happen in that time, and I think so often the best thing we can do is come to a place of, Lord, I surrender this time to you and whatever you want to do, do it in this time. One of the great challenges you will face when you enter into silence and solitude is exhaustion. We as a society live perpetually exhausted. You guys are quiet, you already sleep on me? <laughs> We're exhausted. And so when we enter into that place and we sit still for long enough, we find ourselves starting to drift off. Or like me, I don't fall asleep, but I'm perpetually frustrated that I don't have the energies to engage this time. And I always say for the first couple times, that's okay. Rest in God's presence. If you need, fall asleep. But then the next time, I just encourage you to simultaneously with this practice to reevaluate your sleep schedule and prioritize resting. Your body and your spirit are connected. And if you're starving your body of rest, then it's going to be impossible for you to engage God in the stillness and quiet. You need sleep. It's part of our dependence on God. So if you're gonna do a longer retreat, what I encourage you to do is start it not with getting alone and being quiet, but going to bed early, turning the screen off, sleeping in a little bit, and coming into that space refreshed to, so that you can be attentive to what God wants to say and do. The second challenge that people often face and the biggest question is get, hey, Daniel, that's great, but once I get to that space, what do I do? <laughs> Nothing. <laughs> and that's incredibly hard for us because we are driven and defined our value in what we accomplish. We measure everything by like, man, I accomplished this in this time. I produced this in this time. I got this insight in this time. And when we go through science and solitude and we look back and be like, well, what did you do? I don't know. It can be, uh, it can really like challenge our ability to enter in because we want to see this time's only valuable if, it, if I can see what it produced in my life. But here's the truth. In solitude, it's not what you do, but what you don't do. See, it's not what you do, but what you don't do. Solitude is not what you accomplish, but what it accomplishes in you. Andrew Murray said this, but surely there is something for us to do. The answer is, our doing and working are but the fruit 
of Christ's work in us. It is when the soul becomes utterly passive, looking and resting on what Christ is to do. That the energies are stirred up to their highest activity and that we work most effectively because we know that he works in us. In silence and solitude, it's when we become utterly passive to the work of God. And the last and probably the hardest thing is as we quiet ourselves and our external noise, the internal noise seems to get louder, right? The external noise seems to reverberate within our souls, the fears, the doubts, the desires, our past, our history, seem to rise to the surface and clamor for our attention. Listen to me, look at me. What are we supposed to do in those moments when we silence everything around us, but our internal noise gets louder? What do we do? And this is what I do, and this is what I encourage you to do. This is where we enter the process of quieting our souls. Psalms 131 says this, I do not concern myself with great matters or things too wonderful for me. But look at this. I have calmed and quieted myself. I am like a weaned child with its mother. Like a a weaned child, I am content. See, as those things rise to the surface, solitude and silence is not this arriving to this moment of tranquility all of a sudden. In fact, most of the time in silence and solitude, we're not tranquil at all. But what we're doing is we're sitting there and we are hushing our soul. We're stilling it. And so you might be like, man, I've... I spent 30 minutes in silence and solitude, and I think I was quiet for one minute of that. Good, you did it right. Because so much of the process is quieting and hushing our souls so that we might find ourselves fully content in God. So this is what I encourage you to do. As those things bubble to the surface, desires, fears, responsibilities, things that you think you should be doing, just write them down. Write them on a piece of paper and observe them with curiosity, but don't engage them. Don't go down the path of trying to fix everything that comes to the surface. But say, man, when I get quiet, my mind always goes to work. Why is that? Or when I get quiet, I begin to play out these grand fantasies of what I could be, what I wish I was, what I wish other people thought of me. What does that say? And so it's not trying to fix yourself, but it's just saying, God, I observe this feeling, I observe this emotion 
and holding it loosely and maybe even letting it go for a time so that you might be fully present to what God is saying to you. Another thing I encourage people to do is to have a word, a passage, an image of God that can anchor your mind in the moment. It can be as simple as Jesus or the Lord is my shepherd or be still and know I'm God. That as my mind wanders, I just gently guide it back to that word and allow myself to re-enter into stilling and calming myself before the Lord. So as we close, here in a moment, I'm gonna ask you a question, but I wanna tell you first off that as a church, we really want to integrate this practice, not only as a church, but in our own lives, as leaders and invite you as church members to begin to explore and to practice the practice of silence and solitude and stillness in your life in some way this year. And so one way that we wanna come along and support you in that is that we have these practice groups. They're groups where people come together for four weeks and they learn about a practice and then they go do that practice and then they come back and talk about what they experience. And so we are offering two practice groups starting in about a week and a half, two weeks, that'll be available and you can sign up for those in the back. If, if you sense the Lord stirring this in you, I just wanna encourage you, take a step, get community around you. I know it seems odd to talk about and do solitude with others, but sometimes that's what's necessary to begin to practice this and develop it as a habit in your life. 